So if you would, please, let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And tonight we'll consider verses 11 through 13, this particular hymn that Paul borrows from in 2 Timothy. Um, but I know it's been a little bit of time since we've been in this, um, in this book, actually probably about a month of Wednesdays since we've been here. I know we had uh, very able folks filling in for me, but let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and read through it for context so we can kind of remind ourselves where we were with this. Remember, Paul is writing to his young colleague in the faith to encourage him in the midst of the difficulties that Timothy's having in this church. The difficulties that Timothy is facing are really on the difficulty scale. They're nothing compared to the difficulties that Paul is currently facing. Paul is in prison facing execution facing false accusations, facing everybody leaving him, deserting him, uh, and even those who were once close to him. In reality, Timothy's not experiencing anything like that. But what Timothy is experiencing is difficult for Timothy. And as we've been through this chapter, I wanted to emphasize again, as we've emphasized before, all suffering is relative. And we've got to be very careful as Christians who are who are uh, obligated to show the compassion of Christ. We've got to be very careful not being judgmental about someone else's suffering. Because quite frankly, I've said it before and I'll say it again, the things that bother me may not bother you at all. They may not bother you one bit. And on the other hand, the things that I see you get upset about, I may say, why in the world is she upset about that? You know, uh, She needs to get a real problem. She wants to hear a real problem. Listen, hear to the person that called me right before them. You know, not, That's wrong. We cannot do that. All suffering is relative. And we need to recognize that, realize it, and love our fellow believer enough to recognize that. Um, So Paul is recognizing Timothy's suffering in spite of the fact that it's nowhere near to the degree that most of us would say that Paul is going through. But but he says to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore... My son, this is his son in the faith, not his biological son. My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's passages and others like this that, that have uh, led some expositors in the past to, to label Timothy, timid Timothy, you know, cowardly Timothy. But that's totally unfair. Timothy was in a difficult spot. And just because Paul is encouraging him to be strong, uh, that doesn't mean that, that Timothy is timid. We can all use encouragement. I mean, I can use encouragement. You can too. So when somebody's patting you on the back saying, let's go, let's be strong, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily a weakling with wobbly knees. We would misinterpret, we'd miss the beauty of the passage if we go down that particular road. He says, And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will, who will be able to teach others also. That's the way Christianity works. There's, there are no, there's no celebrity ship in Christianity. There's no, um, there's no one teacher in Christianity. When one teacher dies, another one, or when one teacher retires, an, a, God raises up another. And then when that one retires or dies, then God will raise up another. You see, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the church is built upon the foundation of doctrine, the teachings of the apostles and the, the prophets, as it is said. So God is going to continually lift up people that will do that. We've got to realize we worship a big enough God who can do that. Even though we may not see who's on the horizon at a time, at any particular time, God knows who's on the horizon, and he's building those individuals up. And Timothy is not to take all of this upon himself. He is to entrust that which Paul has given him 
to other people. And wouldn't that make sense? Because Timothy can only be at one place at one time. But if Timothy was to entrust what Paul had taught him to five or six or ten or twelve other pastors, other capable, qualified men, men of good character, that are, are sound in their theology, then they could spread out and teach so many more. When uh, I was in India, we, we taught 700 pastors, 718 to be specific. I can, and they, and they so much wanted me to come back, and I, and I told them I would. You know, I was kind of joking around. I hope it's the Lord will give me like a year to recover from this one before we do it again. But I will. But the point is, I don't. I hope, and I, and I was very strong with them about this, that that's not the only time their congregations, everybody's exposed to the word between now and the time that we come back again. Hopefully, they'll take what we taught. And then they'll go teach it to, you know, if there's an average of, what, 25, 30 people per those 700 men. I mean, you do the math. But that's a whole bunch of people that will be affected, not just those 700. It should, it should spread exponentially. So this is what Paul is telling you here. Then he says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And he gives three illustrations. The soldier illustration, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So there's a focus that the minister has to have. Then in verse 5, and if anyone also competes as an athlete, second illustration, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So there's certain boundaries and parameters that all who preach the word are bound by. And we can't just flaunt those. We can't just say, well, that's for everybody else. Or uh, as I teach some of my classes at, at the College of Biblical Studies, uh, it, character does matter in the pastorate. It doesn't matter how good a, an individual can teach the word if they're disqualified for character reasons. They're disqualified for character reasons. I didn't make that up. God made it up. God in his sovereignty said, if this, if this is the case, you're not going to do this. You find person, you can go to heaven, you're going to get great reward, you can grow where you're planted, but that's not the role for you. So there, you have to play by the rules. There are rules. And then finally, an agricultural illustration. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. One thing we stressed here is that those in the ministry should be hardworking. There's no place for laziness in the ministry. Actually, there's no place for laziness in the Christian life at all, no matter what it is that you do. Because whatever you do as your, your occupation, your profession, that's your ministry. So when you go to work, whether you're a, uh, an administrative assistant or a teacher postal worker or an engineer or doctor, whatever it may end up being, you should be the hardest working person at your firm, the hardest working person at that station. Whatever it is you do, you need to do it with some integrity and with, with uh, some vigor and some enthusiasm. No matter what it is, we ought to be hardworking. Uh, John, uh, Mark, uh, not, uh, John Calvin came up with this idea of the Protestant work ethic. Because I suppose maybe too many of these people were lazy at, the, at that time. There have been way too many people over the course of history that have been just sitting back waiting for the resurrection. So many so, many so that back in Thessalonians, Paul says, listen, if you're not going to work, you ought not to eat. You don't just sit back and wait for the resurrection. You need to work every single day up until that time. If we knew for certain the resurrection was going to come tomorrow, I hope we would have still had this time of fellowship around the Word and prayer tonight. We should be hardworking. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything in verse 7. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And we spent time on the resurrected Jesus Christ here. It's, that's what separates Christianity from all other faiths. There are only really three major faiths that believe in an infinite personal God. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And Islam is debatable. Once you get really deep into it, it's, in, it's debatable whether Allah in Islam's thinking is infinite and personal, but... But let's just give them that for right now. This, this separation between those three faces, what do you think of Jesus Christ? The Jew thinks he was a fraud. 
the Muslim thinks he was a prophet, but certainly not the greatest prophet, certainly not the last prophet. But the Christian believes that Jesus is undiminished deity, true humanity in one person forever, and risen from the dead, proving that he was indeed who he said he was and should be listened to. So he spent time with the resurrection in verse 8. And then he said in verse 9, for, for which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal. Now that word criminal there is a serious criminal. Paul had been thrown in prison as a serious threat to Rome. And he was anything but that. In fact, he was the opposite of a threat to Rome. If they would have listened to him, the Roman Empire might have gone on for a whole lot longer period of time. But he's in prison as a serious criminal. But I love what he says. Even though he's in prison, the word of God is not imprisoned. You cannot imprison the word of God. Then in verse 10, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal life. Hold your place in in 2 Timothy, and turn back for just a moment to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because when we studied this passage, we went through a laundry list of some of the things that Paul had suffered. When Paul talks about suffering, he's not talking about losing the remote. He's not talking about the cable, the cable company being sold to another cable company and me losing my Encore stations. That's not what he's talking about when it comes to suffering. He's not talking about losing Roger Clements to the Yankees. That's not suffering when Paul speaks of suffering. Listen to his list of suffering when he talks about enduring hardships. In chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 23, he's, he's actually having to, to as, as he always was, correct the Corinthian church on something. But he says, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about the people who had come in and tried to refute his teaching. I speak as if I was insane. I more so. I far more in labors, far more in imprisonments, beaten times without number. Now, I can remember the times I've been beat up. A couple, two, maybe three if you count one other. I can remember every specific one, the specifics of every one of those. Paul had been beaten up so many times, he can't remember how many times he'd been beaten up. That's a bunch. The list could stop right there and be enough for me. Beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the 39 lashes from the Jews. The Jews and the Romans both had this scourging down so well that they knew that 40 lashes would typically kill a person. So they had the 40 minus 1. That's the 39 that's mentioned here. Five times he was beaten literally to within an inch, maybe a centimeter of his life. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. They actually left him for dead at that point, but he wasn't. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day in the, I spent in the deep. I've spent on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, Dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers amongst false brothers. There's nowhere he could go. That, that list is pretty conclusive, isn't it? There's nowhere he could go that he wasn't in danger. Look at verse 27. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. There's something comforting about that verse. I don't know if you caught it. I don't, I don't, have you ever spent a sleepless night? being concerned over some or sleepless few hours in the middle of the night. Paul did too. Even Paul had nights that were sleepless, where things were so on his mind, where he was so stressed out that he he lost sleep. And apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure upon me for the concern for all the churches. So he actually I think it's interesting too that he placed concern for the churches and the stress that that gave him on a par with being beaten times without number. Uh, what a servant of the Lord. But we all should be uh, that way.
Now back to Second Timothy. Let's look uh, at again at verse ten. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. We, we commented on this briefly. We've commented on it before. I'm only going to say just a few words about it tonight. We'll come back to this again when the passage itself speaks to it more clearly. But some folks see the word chosen in a passage. It, it was interesting in some of the commentaries that I consult to confirm uh, what I've done or, or to give me some ideas on some er- other areas I need to go to. Uh, there were several that immediately saw the word chosen and then launched into a long dissertation on unconditional election. That's not in this passage at all. That's, that's not what this passage is talking about. But we do need to at least mention it. Um, let me leave you these thoughts on the matter. And this is something I, I've heard in our church, so I want to make sure I can correct it as much as I can. I've heard folks in our church that have sat under my teaching for a period of time say, I don't believe in election. Well, that's foolish. You don't want to say that. The, the, the doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's there, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before, before God ever created the earth, he chose us. Now, that's an undeniable biblical truth. What you may want to say, if you're going to say something like that, is, I don't believe in John Calvin's view of election. I don't, I don't believe in Luther's view of election. I don't believe in Jacob Arminius's view of election. I don't believe in Norm Geisler's view of election. I don't like Bruce's view of election. But don't say you don't believe in election. That, that makes you theologically illiterate, and I, I would hope that we're not at that stage. But, and, and I know what you mean. What, what, you, what you may mean is I don't believe in an extreme view of, of uh, unconditional election, for example. But we don't want to say we don't believe in election. That, that, would, uh, that would set us apart as not as theologically educated as we ought to be by now. Okay? So you, you never would want to say that. But whatever view you, that you take on election, I want you to remember these things. You've got to filter your view of election at least through this minimal grid. The first is, and this is the most important of all, you have to remember that the Bible undeniably states that God desires all men to be saved. You cannot get around that. You can't punt it out the door. You can't ignore it. God desires the salvation of all men. That's not his purpose, though. There's a difference between the desire of God and the purpose of God. Because the desire of God has obviously not come true. I know people that aren't saved. I know, I know people that weren't saved when they died. But the purpose of God will be accomplished. That's a sure thing. So while it is, not, it is rather the desire of God that all men be saved, it's the purpose of God that not all will be saved. So something happened between desire and purpose. Something happened. I happen to think that that was human free will. But that's, it's, it's much too simple to, I don't, I don't want to give such a simple answer tonight that we get off on, uh, we dig into a subject that's very deep only with a spoon. I don't want to do that. But, but you've got to remember that God desires all men to be saved. The second thing that we have to remember, and that is that when we speak of the doctrine of election, we've got to bring all of God to the table. God is the sum total of his infinite attributes. You cannot, not with a straight face, you cannot only bring sovereignty to the table. Because God is sovereign, but he's more than that. Everything he does in his sovereignty will also be consistent with his omnibenevolence. The fact that he's all good. The fact that he's all loving. All of, all of his sovereignty has to act consistently with that. It will also act consistently with his justice and his righteousness. He will, never act, he will never sovereignly decide to do something that is not perfectly just and fair and loving and kind. 
So all we got to bring all of God with us. And since I've spoken, and this has been good for me to speak in, in different venues, both in the United States and, a, and abroad, I see what some of the ideas that people have about different doctrines of salvation. One of the ideas that's been presented to me several times, I wish it was just one or two, but it's been several times, that God in his sovereignty has elected some and that all, all the rest are, are condemned to hell. That's, that's legitimate. But then they put all babies, all the mentally handicapped, all the unborn into that category that are all going to hell. Now, here's a problem. The problem with that is that that denies it ignores the omnibenevolence of God. Or what they try to do is redefine what good is. What, redefine what love is. Don't insult me that way. The way we know what love is, we have an in, how many of you have to have love defined to understand what love is? Nobody. Love is one of the hardest things to define. We all innately know what love is. And I'm going to guarantee you something. To condemn an eight-week-old, uh, I don't know if, it's, I don't know if it's an embryo, but that may be an embryo, an eight-week-old or a fetus to hell that has never taken a breath, that has never had a thought, the first thought they would ever have is to stand before the great white throne. And, you're, you know, they're looking up and God would say, you're going to hell. Why? Sir, I don't, I don't under, not to be disrespectful, but I don't understand. You never trusted my son. You weren't one of the elect. Well, sir, I, I never had a thought. This is, this is the first thought I ever had. I'd be more than happy to trust your son. No, you didn't do it too late. You're gone. Can you, can you see? You don't have to be a theologian with a Ph.D. to see the theological absurdity of that. Yet some people hold that very strongly. And that is not the God of the Bible. God of the Bible is not going to send an infant to hell. That infant never had the opportunity to fulfill the one requirement that the Bible gives for justification. I wonder what some people are reading. I wonder if we're reading the same book sometimes. The mentally retarded, the mentally handicapped. Never had an opportunity. Couldn't have done it if they wanted to. And that's the one responsibility. So if you never have the opportunity to fulfill the one responsibility, God in his justice, in his fairness, in his goodness, is free to then apply the finished work of Christ on the cross to that individual's account. So they still don't get to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. I hope you see the difference. We talked about that on Sunday. They still have to get to heaven through Jesus Christ, but God is free since they couldn't fulfill the one condition. God is free to take that finished work of Christ and justify them freely by His grace without them ever exercising the one condition, because they couldn't. This isn't rocket science, with all due respect to Carl Kepler, who is a rocket scientist. <laughs> you know, It's fairly simple. We shouldn't make it more complicated than, we, than, we, uh, than it's necessary for it to be. There are some other things I want you to remember, though, when you think about the doctrine of election, and that is that God is sovereign. Let's don't forget that. No creature, no creature can act outside of the sovereignty of God. You cannot act independently of the sovereignty of God. Now, that doesn't mean he manipulates your decisions. The way I read the Bible, God sovereignly chose to make you choose. Now, he didn't lose control of the situation when he did that. He's got complete control of the situation. He is sovereign. And one word, and I do need to say this because I said it wrongly too many times, because I believed people who uh, and didn't check it out. I wasn't like the Bereans and went back and actually checked it out. But there have been times in the past when I told you that Jacob Arminius' main fault was that he believed you could act outside the sovereignty of God. 
And that's not true. I went back and read Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius denied that flatly. He said, you cannot act outside the sovereignty of God. So sometimes we need to read the people that we criticize. And I will say, I've criticized Arminius. He should not be criticized on that point. The other point he shouldn't be criticized on is the lack of eternal security. While many Arminians believe you can lose your salvation, Jacob Arminius did not. He said that I do affirm the doctrine of eternal security. However, there are passages that are difficult for me to understand. That's all he said. So sometimes we give people a bad name. Not that Arminius cares. He's in heaven with the Lord and enjoying a place with no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. But just so we quit trashing his name for things that he doesn't deserve to be trashed for. Now, he made a few mistakes, I'm sure. But both Calvin and Arminius affirm that you cannot act outside of the sovereignty of God. Here's another thing you have to run your, your view of election through. And that is the fact that the death of Christ on the cross renders all men savable. A doctrine of unlimited atonement. Another thing, salvation is a gift of God. We must remember that. It's not a work of man. Man can do nothing ever, ever, ever to earn salvation. Salvation is by grace. Let's don't jump to the faith part yet. Salvation is by grace. So when we say, when we say who saved us, it's not us. It's not my trusting Christ. It's, it's Christ seeing that faith. That's the responsibility that he gave us. And God saves me. By his grace. We want to make sure that God is always the agent of salvation in our thinking. Regardless of what view you take on, on the whole election predestination issue. And finally, the only responsibility that is ever given to man to receive eternal life, to be justified before God, to, to have God's righteousness imputed, to receive the forgiveness of sins, and many, many other things. The only responsibility that's ever given us is faith. Not faith plus works. I'm sad to announce tonight, and, and I, it, I do this, my gut is churning, that one of the people that I respect so much in Christianity, Professor at Baylor, Francis Beckwith, the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. I, was gonna, I, I had on the agenda for next year to have Dr. Beckwith come and speak at our church because we have a connection with him. Uh, Dr. Beckwith has decided he's going to go back and become a Roman Catholic. It, is, it has stunned the evangelical world. Um, it stuns me to, how anybody could go from grace, faith, apart from works, back to, by grace, through faith, plus works. But he has, in my view, and, I, and I've met him, he's a great guy, but I'm, I'm afraid Dr. Beckwith got too smart by half. And, he's, and it just is a, a very sad thing. Yeah, now Dr. Geisler, I'm sure, is fixed to get a hold of him, and, and Dr. Bujashevsky from University of Texas. They're great friends, but it seems though his mind is made up, and this is a, a very, very sad thing. I, I just found out about it two days ago myself. So the only responsibility given is faith, not faith plus works, faith and faith alone. So Paul endured over the course of his ministry all that Satan threw at him. He didn't start whining about his position. Uh, he did pray three times at one point for a, for a thorn to be removed from his flesh. But then as soon as God said, listen, that thorn's there for a reason. My grace is sufficient for you. He said, okay. He's a, he's a great model for us to follow. Now, the ultimate model is Jesus Christ. But Paul endured all that Satan threw at him, and he did so because he loved his Lord. It's as simple as that. And he loved the message of salvation, and he loved those who received it. Now, let's look at verses 11 through 13. What we see here, it should be offset in your Bibles in a slightly different way. I, I notice most of you have, have it that way, but some might not. Verses 11 through 13 are poetry. 
whereas the rest is, of course, prose. Verses 11 through 13 were apparently uh, a few lines from a hymn that was popular in Paul's day. And so what Paul has done, he says, this is a trustworthy statement. So it's like he opened up the hymn and said, you know what, this verse is true, and I'd like to borrow it for the, for the message that, as an illustration for the message that I'm giving you today. So Paul is apparently quoting a trustworthy statement that comes from a hymn that was typically sung in his day. And there are four lines that I want to uh, draw your attention to. The first line, in the first line, as Paul previously reminded Timothy of his spiritual heritage, so here in the first line, Timothy is reminded of his baptism and his obligation to a new life. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. Line two, as Paul endures suffering, so Timothy as he imagines what will it'll be like to reign with Christ, he should endure suffering too. That's verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Then line three. The punishment for living a life contrary to the revealed will of God is severe, as Timothy's opponents are about to experience. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And then the fourth line, the, perhaps the most important line in this hymn that Paul has borrowed from, Temporary faithlessness does not nullify the faithful God who always acts in accordance with his character. That's why he says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's unpack it a little bit now, line by line. The first line, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. The first line refers to the believer's baptism by the Holy Spirit, not his water baptism not the outward expression of an inward conviction of faith in Jesus Christ, but with the believer's baptism by the Holy Spirit, that baptism that takes each believer at the moment of faith and places that believer into the body of Christ. The baptism Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We were all baptized by means of one spirit, all baptized. Some, including a very fine theologian by the name of John Wesley, missed something that was very important in that verse. And theorized that the baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't occur necessarily at the moment of faith, but occurred at some point subsequent to that faith. He wasn't sure how long. For some people it could be a day or two. For other people it could be years and years down the road. And what Wesley did unwittingly is he opened the door for the modern Pentecostal movement because the Pentecostal movement then attached a condition to that. They said that, that it's true, Wesley was right, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit didn't necessarily take place at the moment of salvation. It took place subsequent to that. And then the Pentecostals took that opening, drove a truck through it, and said that the normal and necessary manifestation of being baptized by the Holy Spirit was speaking in tongues. And that is refuted even at the end of the same uh, section of Scripture. Because right after that, Paul says, says that not all speak in tongues, do they? No, but yet all were baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. What Wesley missed was the fact that the only way that that statement could be true, particularly with the Greek verb that Paul used, was that if that baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred at the moment of salvation. That's the only way he could say all have been baptized. He's, remember, he's speaking to Corinth, not exactly the poster child church for spirituality in the ancient world. It's significant that he said it in Corinth. Had he said it in Ephesus... Maybe you could say, well, everybody in Ephesus was mature. That's why he could say it. But certainly not everybody in Corinth was mature. But all had been baptized. So it occurs at the moment of salvation. So that's why Paul says, if we've died with him, and that's part of the whole baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. Paul talks about it in Romans 6, 
that when, when Christ died, we died with him. We were so identified with him by the baptism of the Holy Spirit that it is as if when he died, we died. And we didn't suffer like he suffered, but we died with him. That's our, that's our association with him. If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live together with him, Romans 6, 8. So we are intimately identified with Christ by means of the Spirit's baptism, with his death, but watch, and with his life. It's not just with his death that we're identified with, intimately, closely identified with, because that's what baptism means. It means an identification. We're also identified with his life, with that resurrection. That's why Paul's arguing in Romans chapter 6, since we are now that closely identified with Christ, rather than our old identification with Adam, we need to start acting like it. If you recall our study of Romans, we should act as though we were under the headship of Christ, not under the headship of Adam. But the reality is, we have died with him. The, the, the Greek text says, if we've died with him. But the reality is, we have died with him. And we do live with him. In Greek, this is called a future most vivid clause. They used to call this a first-class condition, but modern Greek grammarians call it a future most vivid clause. Line two. If we endure, we will also reign. Occasionally I may ask if all believers will reign with Christ. If all church-age believers will reign with Christ in the millennium, the answer is no, I don't think so. And this is one of the passages that makes me say that. Only those who endure will reign. Some have the idea that if you're really a believer, you will endure to the end. I don't see that in the Bible. I see plenty of warnings against that idea. If it was an automatic that we were all going to endure the suffering and the hardships that, that take place and, and finish our life on an upswing, if that was a sure thing, you've you got to explain all these passages that encourage us to do so. No, not everybody's going to endure. But those who do endure will reign. Remember that the context of Paul's usage of this hymn the context is endurance and suffering. I've read you a list of the endurances that Paul suffered. Few are going to be called upon to suffer the way that Paul did. Frankly, I hope I'm not called upon. I'll tell you that now. I'm a pansy when it comes to that. I hope I'm not called upon to have to endure that list that Paul had to endure. But whatever we're called upon to endure, let us endure it with grace in poise, in faithfulness, no matter what it is, even if it's losing the remote, let's at least handle that with grace and poise, <laughs> faithfulness. I, I tell you what, I, when I was in India, the, the, the coolest it got was 108 degrees when we were ministering. And I thought that was a hardship. My, my knees got real wobbly one day. But you know what? I'm back here now. I'm sitting in air conditioning. It's it's uh, 73 degrees in here. It's really, it's, it's nice. You, that was nothing. Yeah. That was nothing. And, and how might I have been perceived by, in this case, the Indians, but the Pakistanis, it was hotter there. If I just started whining, I'm not, I'm not going to preach in this environment. You're going to have to get some air conditioners out here. You're going to have to get some people to fan me. This is ridiculous. <laughs> the whole testimony would have gone down the road, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, it would not have been endured with grace and faithfulness and integrity. So no matter what it is that we're called upon to endure, we need to do it with grace. And that's going to be different for all of us. Line three is the one that 
that gets people in trouble sometimes because they think that this means we're going to lose our salvation. There's a potential to lose it. Problem is, in order to come up with that view, you've got to ignore line four. You don't. You can't just pull one line out of the, of the whole paragraph and say, this is what I'm going to camp on. So we have to understand line three in light of line four. If we didn't have line four, then maybe. But we do. Line three, if we deny him, he'll deny us. Here's a sad reality. Believers can and do deny their Lord. Can and do. Peter did it in a very public way. We most often do it in a little more private way, don't we? But denial of Christ is a reality for the vast majority of us. Let me explain. You, you don't have to stand up in the public square with a little slave girl asking if you're one of those men from Galilee that was with Jesus to deny Jesus Christ. We can do it real subtly all the time. We can do it subtly by, by sitting in a movie where Jesus Christ's name is used as a cuss word 14 times in the first three minutes. You, you can do it subtly by having someone use Jesus Christ as the bad end of a joke and just going home and laughing all along with them like there's no big deal at all. You can do it with your lifestyle. I've done it with my lifestyle. One of the lowest moments of my life was uh, occurred, it was 20 plus years ago, maybe 25 years ago, but before I was uh, in the pastoral ministries, I was a chiropractor for many years, and when you, when you do that kind of work, you get to meet your patients, and you see them over and over again, and you usually see them for 10 to maybe 12 minutes at a time, maybe 15 minutes at a time, and, and there's a rehab program that you go through. You may see them three times a week for eight weeks or six weeks, so you, you see them a number of times. I don't remember how many times this particular fellow had come in to the office, but I do know it had been quite a few, maybe three, four weeks' worth. So that would be 12 visits at 10 minutes a visit. That's, what, almost two hours' worth of time, isn't it? And, and I remember it was a Wednesday, and he, he was asking me, we were conversing when I was doing some therapy on him or something, and he, he said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I'm going to Bible study tonight. He said, Bible study? Why? I never really asked that question before. I said, well, that's what I do. You know, that's what I do at night. I go to Bible study and, and uh, go to Bible study. And that's what I do. <laughs> and he said, this is what he said, though, that broke my heart. He said, you're a Christian? Now, he meant it as a compliment. He meant it that, hey, listen, you're just one of the guys. That you're lunch bunch material. I can't. You're a Christian? And I said, Yeah. Yeah, I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. So, wow, I never took you for a Christian. And then he, but visit was finished, he left. You see, he, he thought he was building me up. I went in my office, put it by head in my hands, shut the door, and said, what have I done? How, how in the world could this guy be with me for two hours total and never have the foggiest notion that I was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing, nothing in my life at all pointed toward Christ. I realized something had to be done right then. It didn't, it didn't mean I needed to start wearing a I love Jesus pin or that I needed to put a fish on the outside of my office. That, that wasn't it. I think those are cheap substitutes, frankly. Cheap substitutes for really changing you from the inside out to where people look at you and know something's different. So I resolved that nobody would spend that much time with me in, in the future and not know that I was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I had denied Jesus Christ by my... Common behavior. That's a way we can deny him, too. So you don't just have to stand up 
and say, I renounce Christ. There's other ways to do it that are much more subtle. If we deny him, he's going to deny us. Now, thankfully, I do believe that God realizes our weaknesses. We have a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses, Jesus Christ. That's part of the book of Hebrews. And he knows that we're going to fail from time to time. Fail probably more than we succeed. So he doesn't look at a single denial. Look at Peter. Peter certainly denied in a very public way, but Peter made a comeback. We can all make a comeback. But he's looking at the overall body of work that we do. We've got to be very careful. You see, lines 2 and 3 give us the experiential options for the believer. We can endure or we can deny. Those are the two options. We endure or we deny. Both are possible realities, if not probable realities. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're very possible, possibly probable realities. And we all have to be careful with this. As soon as you leave this room saying, I'll never deny Jesus Christ, okay, sit back and wait. That's, you're going to be bombarded with opportunities to do so. We need to be humble about this. There will be periods of both probably for most of us. Periods where we've denied our Lord, periods where we've endured and spoken up for him. And Christ will evaluate us at the judgment seat of Christ on the overall body of what we've done. How faithful we have been on the whole. And I take great comfort in that. No one is faithful 100% of the time. But have you been consistently faithful or consistently unfaithful? That's the question. Have you consistently endured or have you consistently denied? That's the issue. And finally, in line four, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then what some see is Paul's comment on the hymn, maybe not the hymn itself, for he cannot deny himself. It's, it's very probable that that's a comment that Paul puts in at the end that wasn't part of the original hymn. God's made you a very clear promise. Trust Christ and you will receive eternal life. Eternal life. That's God's life. The possession of eternal life then does not depend upon you. It depends upon God. It depends upon the character of God. This is one of those doctrines that is disputed worldwide. People just can't get their hands around eternal security. But the Bible speaks of it very explicitly, very clearly. Remember Jesus, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. They're having this discussion about water, and then Jesus changes it to a spiritual discussion. He said, listen, if you'd asked me, I'd give you some water to drink, and if you drank that water, you'd never be thirsty again. Did you hear that? Never be thirsty again. Not, not you're going to be thirsty the next time you sin, the next time you disappoint me, the next time you deny me. No, you'll never be thirsty again. John chapter, John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. The Son has you in his grip. The Father has you in his grip. Ephesians 4.30, the Holy Spirit has you sealed. Not until the next time you sin or disappoint God, until the day of redemption. I always wonder, and I've asked people this too, and, and there's very seldom a cogent answer. How many times do you have to sin before you lose your salvation? And, and what sins do you have to commit to lose your salvation? You've got you to gotta carry through your theology. But my favorite, Romans 8, 38, 39, and Paul concludes that great chapter by saying, I'm persuaded, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul uses the phrase in Christ Jesus in Romans as a technical term for those who have been justified. Nothing. Objection to the doctrine of eternal security must be filtered through these passages. You have to have an answer for these passages. So in conclusion, in here, as Paul references this ancient hymn, we learn that success and failure are both options. They're both possibilities in the Christian life. Endurance under suffering is the expected behavior of the believer, but it's far from a sure thing. But one thing we know for sure, once received, we cannot lose our eternal life. For even if we fail to endure and we deny our Lord, he will always, because of his eternal character, act in a faithful manner toward us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that our salvation is not up to us, that you're the one who saved us, that you hold us eternally secure in your hand. We thank you that the Son holds us as well and that the Spirit has sealed us. We thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing that can happen in the present time. No future judgment. Nothing that any created thing could even do to us, including Satan, including Satan. We thank you for that reality. Father, I do pray that you would help us to endure under suffering, not to deny you, not to ever deny our Lord. But when we do, may we be quick to repent of that, to confess our sin to you, to begin walking in fellowship again, and to endure that which this life throws at us. For we know that we're not doing it alone. We know that nothing gets to us that has not passed through your hands first. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all the provisions for victory that you've given us. May we use them to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.